You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. Oh, I have a six feet under question for you guys, right? Sure. Episode one, Brenda meets Nate on a plane. Nate is coming from Seattle to Los Angeles, right? Why, I don't, why was Brenda in Seattle? Whoa. That's a great question. Wait, that's a great question. What was Brenda doing in Seattle? We don't answer that question on this week's show, but we do answer a whole lot of other ones. You're listening to Fisher Family Ghosts. A Six Feet Under companion podcast. I'm Sam Dingman. I'm Adrian Bain. Folks. Oh my God. Welcome to another rip-snorting edition of Fisher Family Ghosts. That sounds like not... That's not six feet under energy. Oh, yeah! We're going to talk about some intergenerational trauma. (laughs) Let's get ready to stumble. Oh, my God. When did your... Wait, what is that? Uh, Over our words, I meant. Because that happens a lot when I'm trying to formulate ideas. I am truly speechless right now. (laughs) This is... I've never seen that character It's probably because I'm shouting. I should stop shouting. Please. Can I tell the listeners about my favorite joke that I have ever made? All right, I'll do it anyway. <laughs> Adrian, around the holidays, made this incredible dessert called rum balls. Oh, yeah. Which is chocolate. It's it's chocolate cake that, or like kind of a brownie mix. It has to be extremely like moist and soft. And so then you take the, you bake it as if it's going to have frosting on it. But before putting frosting on it, you crumble everything and then you pour a bunch so you turn it into like cake crumbles and then you pour a fuck ton of i think confectionery sugar and rum into it and then you roll them up into balls and voila you have rum balls and before i ate one every time i said let's get ready to rumble oh my god i loved that joke and it was intensely satisfying mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm really glad you're letting people in on this. I think even if they didn't realize, they wanted to know. Hmm. Okay, everybody. We have a lot to cover on this week's show because this episode, season two, episode five, The Invisible Woman, Mm -hmm. was very... Is she she even there? Well, well. And who is If we die alone, do we even exist? That's a great question. One of them, one of the many posed uh, by the episode, I think. Yeah. But before we get to that, as per usual, we would like to check the Fisher Family Ghosts email inbox, which is available to all of you who would like to reach it at ffg at walt.fm. All right. This week, we would like to share another email from a listener named Sarah. Sarah writes, Sam and Adrian. I am a longtime listener of Family Ghosts and a listener of this podcast since episode one. Thank you, Sarah. Oh, my God. You are in exclusive company. (laughs) (laughs) It might just be the three of us. No. I just mean who have been listening since episode one, because nobody knew about it when it first came out. That's true. 
Sarah continues, I am also a fan of Six Feet Under, though I didn't come to the series until after it had finished airing. I have since watched the series through three times, most recently in the first months of the pandemic. Mm, Excellent time to contemplate your mortality. It really, yeah, I have to say, the idea to do this first came to me during the pandemic because I thought I was feeling an itch to watch Six Feet Under again, and I thought, I bet a lot of people are going back. I remember that walk. To the Fishers. Yeah, right about now. Anyway, Sarah says, as an English professor, I am so often forced into a position of authority over meaning that I try to be vigilant over my personal responses to texts in the classroom. Recap podcasts scratch that having an opinion itch because they leave me free to have all the responses I want. I have been meaning to weigh in on a... Wait, actually, before we continue, Sarah, I'm so grateful to you for sharing that because full disclosure, one of the reasons that Adrian and I decided to start a TV recap podcast is that we... We definitely understand that there is an assumption as to what a TV recap podcast could be and that it's like, oh, we're just talking about The Bachelor because there are a disgusting number of Bachelor recap podcasts. But I don't know. I like the way that we're doing it because I think I like to think that we're having very deep and meaningful conversations, not just about and like the show is so oh my god, let me just like raise my pinky. Um but like the show is just so deep and thoughtful and I like to think that we aspire to have deep and thoughtful conversations about topics that are not always easy to have. Um not just like oh Sarah didn't get a rose, you know. I like to think that we add a little bit of depth to what seems like a very superficial podcast genre. We both work in podcasting in our lives outside of Fisher Family Ghosts and are aware that there is a conversation about, ugh, there's all these podcasts. It's just people sitting and talking about nonsense and the, the TV shows that they like. And which I have to say is a comment that is made every time a new platform becomes popular, uh, whether it's Twitter or podcasts. But something you're next. (laughs) The olds are coming for you, Clubhouse. (laughs) I do not understand what Clubhouse is. Anyway, I think it goes back to something that we were talking about in response to an email last week, which is that a misunderstanding people have is that, and Sarah, I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but a recap podcast is in a way the appeal of podcasting in its purest form, which is, in my opinion, companionship, something that doesn't command your attention, but shares it. And what do you want to do? And what, what do you want to do when you're sharing an attention, when you're sharing your attention with a TV show, it, especially during a pandemic, it worms its way into your life at the fabric of your life. You're you're half living in that world. You get so enmeshed with it and it, it overtakes you. And TV recap podcasts are a way of sharing that state of mind with other people who are just as jazzed about it as you are. And I don't think that that is a casual or disposable form of media in the way that it is often denigrated to be. I think also, given the pandemic and we haven't been able to see our own friends, we've started replacing our favorite TV characters with friends. Like, there have been times where you and I talk about a character as if we've just hung out with them. And I think that's just a fault of the... That's just, like, a weird repercussion of the pandemic. 
and from the few friends that I've talked to in this past year that they also feel the same way where we're not able to actually have these like really meaningful moments. So we're kind of living them through these TV characters who are off, you know, they're, they're kind of quarantined in their own way. They're not allowed to leave their own world, but you know, I think that we found like, we found that like emotional replacement. And so a TV podcast, a TV recap podcast is like, as if we're all in the same friend group. I think this happens most acutely with Nikki on big love where Adrian and I will periodically turn to each other and say, you know, Nikki has it really hard. Yeah. And and she makes things difficult for everybody else, but that's because her life is extraordinarily difficult honey, in a way that very few people honey, understand. Honey, we can't talk about other TV shows when we're doing our Six Feet Under podcast. Okay. We will tentatively make a Big Love one, though. Everybody, please watch Big Love so, and email us about Nikki. So good. Recap. Okay, let's continue with Sarah's email. She says, anyway, Sarah, uh, sorry for ranting in the middle of your email, but I appreciate your sentiment very much. Okay, she continues. I have been meaning to weigh in on a question you asked a while ago, maybe in season one, about the audience's relationship to David. Is he the main character or the one we are supposed to relate to? I was waiting for you to get past the first few episodes of season two before writing. Mm. When I first joined Pinterest back in 2012, I created a board for my favorite fictional characters, and David was one of the first ones I pinned. What? Along with a photo I wrote... On a show that I loved, full of deeply flawed characters, he was the only one that I rooted for. My love for the character hasn't wavered over subsequent watches. To understand why I like David, it's as much about why I don't like Brenda or Nate, or later series Claire for that matter. Later series Claire. Get ready for that, Adrian. (gasps) I appreciate that David puts in the work. Nate is so naturally empathetic. Brenda is so naturally smart. They seem so burdened by these natural gifts which engenders an entitlement expressed by their expectations of others to accommodate them, that really turns me off. Side note, this isn't a rejection that these realities are difficult for people, but rather a judgment over how it imposes limits on character growth in fiction. Because this one part comes naturally, they are less motivated to put in effort in other areas. They often give up when things are hard and point fingers everywhere but at themselves. Oh my god. And then there's David, the dutiful middle child Very little about him feels like it comes easily, and he takes everything to heart. Mm. He doesn't always know what to do with the business, with his relationships, with his life, but he will roll up his sleeves to do it anyway, and the other characters know that about him. I love that Nate helped... I love that Nate tells him about the AVM first, and then in the next episode, Claire comes in to find both of her brothers cleaning up and goes straight to David, asking him Mm -hmm. by name for help. His progress and growth feels earned, and we see it build from episode to episode and across seasons, which makes it so satisfying. So I don't know if that makes him the main character, but he's the one I will go back for again. Oh my God. Wow. We need to have more academics on this podcast. Those are that such, was a poem. Those are such beautiful points, Sarah. Ugh. And it's still landing for me, but I agree very much david so far in the series i think would you agree adrian has changed more than any other Mm -hmm. character is more different in season two but you know we'll talk about season two episode five in a second but is more different in season two episode four than he was in season one episode one oh yeah definitively yeah 
Yeah, I feel like in some instances, which we talk about a little bit, like in some instances, people are regressing. Like I think in this episode, like Ruth and Nate and Brenda are regressing a little bit. And I think that Claire is at an inflection point. But okay. I think that okay. David is much more comfortable in his own skin than he, than he was in season one, episode one, by far. Yeah. I also think, I wouldn't have thought about this until Sarah's email, but I think more so than any other character, David is willing to dive in and live in his flaws and really wrestle with them. I mean, I'm just thinking back yeah. to the way that he wrestles with his relationship with the church. Yeah. He, or, he does not shy away from any of the complexities and challenges of everything he goes through with that. He he just he goes all the way in and he gets himself in trouble a lot of the time as he would as he does in Las Vegas, but he doesn't shy away from the challenge of really trying to to work on these things. I also don't want to let Sarah's email go by without her side note here, which I think is really fascinating. She says, uh, this isn't a react this isn't a rejection that these realities are difficult for people, but rather a judgment over how it imposes limits on character growth in fiction. And Sarah, please feel free to correct me if I'm understanding this wrong. But I think what Sarah is saying is that by giving Nate and Brenda these natural propensities towards empathy and this natural intelligence, it makes it harder for them to develop and grow as characters in a satisfying way because they have they have this obstacle of ability mm-hmm. that they that prevents them from seeing things in themselves that they need to Work improve. Hmm. I love that. I would also love if Sarah gave us a reading list. Sarah? Sarah give us a reading list. I just know I just want to know like what are your best as an English professor and it could be as academic as you want it to be. I would like to know your favorite examples of character growth in fiction? I love that question. Okay. If you would like to reach us, you can do so at ffg at walt.fm. Thank you for writing, Sarah. And... I have one thing to add about the previous episode. Yes. So I wanted to briefly talk about Brenda's sexual fantasy. And I thought it was... The one she has in the bubble bath. In the bubble bath, as Connie from... Big Mouth would say, who is another friend of ours. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so she takes a bubble bath. Bubble bath. And as you said, she kind of baptizes herself and she resurfaces. And when she resurfaces, she starts to have this fantasy about the man from the bar from, I think, an episode or two before, finding her without her giving her address to him. And I think he says something about finding her. She questions him. And he kind of enters without really her permission. He kind of forces himself in. And I think that two things are happening there. One is that this is a sexual representation of Brenda just wanting to be found and but not having to put any effort into it. And then once she is found, she just gets complete pleasure because we don't see her giving him any pleasure. He's fully clothed. Um, so I think that it's like Brenda is just kind of psychologically not grappling that like you have to open the door and you kind of have to go find your own pleasure. 
But then also, Billy, as you said when I told you about this over breakfast, um, Billy breaks in and enters. So I think that her, like, sexual searching, what is, you know, what is my direction right now, is still tangled in with Billy just always breaking in emotionally or in the last case physically into her house it's true and well one if you were wondering if adrian and i talk about six feet under sex scenes over breakfast now you know now you know but make a killer breakfast sandwich but the other thing that what you just said makes me think about adrian Mm -hmm. is that brenda throughout the series up to this point has seemed to fear so much what is going to happen if she allows Nate to have true emotional intimacy mm. with her. She fears that 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 the second he really opens up to her, everything will go sideways because it will replicate her dynamic with Billy. And this sexual fantasy that she has seems to be a moment where she is maybe for the first time allowing in the possibility that she could completely open herself to this experience that she's fantasizing about and derive pleasure from it and not get the signal crossed with Billy and not have it feel. Yeah. I just thought of that right now. So I will continue to ruminate on it as we watch this episode. We have a great conversation with a guest, Mike. Yes, indeed. You heard at the top, and we have a very insightful conversation. We'll see you on the other side. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. I don't know. It's like, when I think about the test, I see this, like, nasty fluorescent light, kind that shows all your pock marks and tiny scars that you wish you could hide. I see. So it's very safe in the darkness, isn't it? <sighs> okay. You're getting kind of corny. All right. All I'm saying is, you're finally in a place where you're starting to come into your own. You know, you're afraid if people see the real you, it'll be scary. And guess what? It is scary. For all of us. Isn't it? I'm glad to see that you're a notes guy, too. <laughs> I'm, 
ready. And I've got bullet points. I've got. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, why don't we start by having you introduce yourself? Okay, I am Mike. This is the first time I've said this. I am 40. I turned 40 uh, 7th of April. So, uh, Congratulations. So that's the first time. Uh, I'm a struggling artist slash writer. Um, made a film in London, never really got released. I've made my own film during lockdown. I've got my own YouTube channel, which is uh, called Neon, Neon Filmosophy. I can't even say it. And it's kind of like film analysis with like a philosophical spin so lots of side hustles going you know but you know surviving <laughs> we very much empathize with that oh yes yeah. speaking of uh i mean this is an excellent episode to be a struggling writer during because of Ugh. the scenes with brenda sitting in her bed yep. with her laptop saying being all the voices in her head about what she's trying to write i i was like that's very relatable yeah <laughs> yeah lots of self-doubt right there um I call it my yeah. Becky brain. You know, you have that part of your brain that just wouldn't shut up. I say, like, if you tell, tell your part, tell that, call yourself that the Becky part, so you can actually talk to your brain. That's so funny that you say that, only because I was listening to an interview with Julia Cameron today, and she's the one who created the artist's ways, and it's all about, like, creative unblocking and process, and she has a voice in her head that she calls Nigel, who is a British interior design designer. And Nigel is always like, mur, 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 you're not good enough. And she just like has learned how to talk to Nigel. Guys, this has already been so therapeutic. Yeah. Which I feel like is appropriate for this episode. Also, given what happens between Claire and Gary. Last question we- before we before we get into talking about the episode. As a, a writer and a filmmaker, do you feel like Six Feet Under changed or affected your creative process at all or the way you thought about storytelling? Wow. Yeah, I think so uh, in terms of character because like Six Feet Under has these incredibly well-written characters with like flaws and understanding where where a person comes from with their flaws. I remember uh, after I finished watching it the first time feeling like I I was always really tempted on the fleeting occasions when I have tried to write fiction, tried to write like film scripts, which is even embarrassing to say out loud. I mean, I've, I've tried like <laughs> two times. Um, so this is a change from the first time to the second time. But um I remember thinking that the first time I tried to write a script, I I felt like everything I wrote had to be funny because the only reason people would want to watch the show is if if the character was funny. And I remember feeling like Six Feet Under kind of give gave me permission to acknowledge the idea that characters might not be happy all the time or the story might not be happy all the time and that wouldn't be a deal breaker. Some would argue that I've gone too far in the other direction since then. but Yeah, one of the like <laughs> running jokes that all of Sam's friends and family have told me in like the beginning of when we were dating is Sam only likes movies with that are long and have sad people in them. I'm kind of the same, really. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love like sadness. I, I just, I love sadness in movies. Like It's good. It's good to get in touch with those things. Yeah. In through art in a world that encourages us to separate ourselves from them. Yeah. Speaking of inner life, what a segue. Oh my God. To this episode. So. So Mike, a lot of times what we like to do at the beginning of the episode is to consider 
the person who dies in the opening scene and think about what the writers are trying to tell us with that death. So I'll, I'll put that question to you first. Does anything come to mind for you? The Invisible Woman, right? It's blatantly, um, Ruth obviously is the blatant obvious choice in the episode. Yeah. But I think you could look at all the female characters and say they're Invisible Women, women as well. Like Brenda and Melissa as well. I think Melissa, the character the, that Brenda's made friends with, you know, she's, um, they're living their own lives. You know, they're their own solo plans, so like me, my existence. And and she literally invites Brenda to come be an invisible woman, basically, uh, during yes. uh, her encounter with her client. Being a watcher. Oh, my God. That's amazing. But but so she's totally an invisible woman. But at the same time, when she's I don't know, I was watching her. She's an actress that I she was in another TV show, Just by Housewives. I don't know how she'll weave her way into this. But you're talking um, about Emily, the woman who dies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the woman who dies she's kind of having like a very pleasant moment with herself and, or at least that's how I interpreted it. But I'm also a woman who like, I enjoy doing things by myself. I don't always need someone to keep me company. So I'm curious if you guys interpreted that moment as, do you think that she was sad or do you think she was like perfectly fine and comfortable with what she was doing? I think it's debatable, but it seemed to think that she was content with it. I think that like, I mean, um, I think Ruth was in one that was re- resistant to that lifestyle, wasn't she? She was like, that's terrible. Why would anyone want to live alone? But like, Claire was just like, maybe she was just living the life she wanted to have, you know? I agree. Um, and, and I think the show is even hinting at that a little bit by virtue of the fact that we see Emily take a bite of her, you know, she has her food that's Pre-made. sealed in plastic and, and she takes a bite of potato and she gives a little smile and it, that ends up being what she chokes on. Um, so, it, you know, it's it's very tragic in that sense. But... I also think that a major theme in this episode for me was if you hide yourself inside too much, eventually mm. it will, you, you won't be able to, it, it will be the end of you in some way. It, it will lead you to ruin in some form. And in the case of Emily, she literally chokes yeah, um, be, because she's by herself, because yeah. she's not sharing her life with anyone. And so I think, I think, that doesn't necessarily suggest which way Emily's true character leans from the standpoint of thinking about was she happy by herself or, or did she wish for others to be in her life? But I do think it suggested, the, it pointed at the larger theme of the episode, which to me was that it's important to let other people know you mm. um, or else or else you might, uh, it, it, will, it will find, or, or else what is inside you will find a way to come out. Yeah. Um, and I think we see that in the form of, of Keith uh, shooting that person who mm-hmm. um, he later feels like he should have aimed at the arm or the leg of. There's obviously a lot to talk about there uh, in, a, in a U.S. context, Mike, because of all the problems we've been having with uh, the police killing people. Um, but uh, I think that's also going on with other characters. You know, mm-hmm. like Claire ends up, you know, throwing the ceramics and stuff against the wall in Gary's office. And she yells at her friend. And she yells at her friend. Yeah. And Gary ends up saying... Gary ends up saying a very strange thing that came out of left field. Yeah, and has clearly kind of broken his trust with Claire in that moment. Yeah. And David lies to Ben on the date and then realizes that, you know, that almost made Ben not want to be with him. Mm -hmm. Um, 
by virtue of saying he was interested in textiles. Yeah. And then, of course, we still have we still have Nate being too scared to to share what's inside of him with Brenda. But also, do you think that Brenda also like? I don't know what an attractive way. Of, like she also releases a little bit by asking by asking him to marry her. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's kind of jumping to the she, end, but I don't know how I feel about that one just yet. That's that's one of the biggest things that happens in the episode, so let's let's talk about it. What what did you guys think about that? Yeah. They are both lying to themselves. I think that's a big theme of this episode. <laughs> they are both yeah. lying like yeah. Um I like, uh, she says, what would I do if I lost you? I'm not going anywhere. And, she, and then um, she's like, you promise. And then he doesn't answer her questions. He just says, oh, of course I'll marry you. And so they're avoiding talking about like the things that matter. And um, so even when she says, I love you, he doesn't say it back. The scene ends and then it goes to the next scene. They're not communicating on that level where they should be. There's not a healthy relationship at the moment. One thing I would love to dissect with that is at the dinner she has with Melissa, um, she kind of goes on, and I kind of want to refresh my memory of what she says, but she's like, I've noticed that Nate has been distant, that he's not present with me, but if he was present with me, I would leave him. She said something along those lines, and I was really confused by that. I feel like she's just deflecting to Nate. Like, it's Nate's problem, not nothing to do with me. It's, 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 it's Nate. <sighs> I think that's what Brenda's doing. I just don't understand why her being present... Why him being present would make her leave him. I felt like Brenda was proving us right in that moment that what she fears the most is true intimacy. Yeah. And that if Nate was really to be himself and to totally open up to her, it would freak her out and she would and make her run away. I thought that was kind of her admitting that to Melissa. But I guess the way she said it made it sound like she was so much more in control of things other than like, I have a fear of intimacy and I'm going to run away. But also, she's obviously trying to be cool in front of her new friend. Yeah, I just thought that was very, I just thought that was really strange. And I just didn't see this, like, sudden jump between between the dinner and then her watching the fellatio and then her proposing. You know, I'm like, where is the, where is your thought, where is your brain here, Brenda? Well, I, that that was a complicated moment for me, knowing, having seen the show before, um, and thinking, <laughs> yeah, that that scene was really, really hard, hard for me to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that sounded weird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but that that scene was was complicated to watch, knowing about things that develop with Brenda's character. But I do feel like within the context of this episode, it felt like they were trying to lead us towards the idea that. Brenda thought maybe she was moving away from a need for intimacy with Nate and and could be a little bit more free and in in herself and and just have these wild adventures and it was somewhat reminiscent of that the sex dream that she had in the past episode about this guy showing up uninvited at her house and then we see her when she comes home from watching that encounter she shuts the door and she laughs almost like she thought the whole thing was so ridiculous and it, it I thought maybe they were trying to suggest that she felt like it didn't feel as much like her as she was hoping it would. And then Mm. the next thing we see her do is propose to Nate. But I also agree with you, Mike, that it, it seems like they're both lying to each other in that moment. They're both looking for something 
that will fix or recapture what they had before and has has so obviously gone missing of late the honeymoon period's over right that's you know she's she's she you know she can't she said she can't be this and he's obviously he's fantasizing about being a rock star so their heads in completely different places i think with what they want well why do you think that nate is lying to himself i think he thinks he cannot be that kind of husband figure that possibly future father figure i think you know he's he's a guy that's been on the road you know he's not used to a home he's never really had a home life has he so i think he fears being a decent uh husband and father figure for anyone he wants to be free he wants to be on the road that's where that's where he feels like himself that's where he feels yeah i mean that's interesting because it dovetails with the fact that we see this voiceover thing in this episode for, I think maybe the first time in the series we see, we hear Brenda's voiceover when she's out for her meal with Melissa talking about Nate as we see Nate going about his business. Oh, yes. And then we also hear David voiceovering to himself in the mirror, fantasizing about Ben. Um, so it's, that's kind of just an interesting narrative device that the show hasn't used yeah. yet, but it's very striking in that moment that Brenda says, I can't put my finger on when this drift started to happen or when this separation started to happen. And we see in that moment, Nate doing, going about his business as a funeral, funeral director, suggesting perhaps that this is not actually his true calling and it's not him finding himself and really being himself, at least Mm -hmm. in Brenda's mind. Right. Because he doesn't do anything interesting. But then, yeah, as she says... But then the, Nate seems to confirm that a little bit, as you pointed out, Mike, by having that fantasy about himself shredding for I know. a crowd full of women. That's kind of the first time that we get that from Nate, as in, like, what do I wish that I could really be doing right now? You know, we haven't... And I think that's interesting, especially juxtaposed the last episode was when he was in Seattle. And also he had an episode in Seattle, so he's like looking at his past life and now he's back in his present life and his present life has like kind of a little, you know, like sand dial over it. Um, he's contemplating his mortality more. So it's interesting that now we start to get more of these like fantasies, you know? They say they want organic intimacy, right? Like at the end of the episode where Ruth confronts the whole family right, right. and Nate's like, I think it should happen more organically than that. And then like, but like, the forced enthusiasm, he has this forced enthusiasm about this marriage proposal that he's not really interested in, right? And also, uh, when she mentions the writing the book, and he's like, it's, that's also kind of like forced enthusiasm as well, I would say. Can't be like contracts what he's, what he's preaching. And he even says to Brenda, in regards to her book, I've always wanted to be a thinly veiled version of myself. I know. Which is kind of who he is with her all the time. Oof. Ouch. So while we're talking about, about the, the complicated nature of people's true inner lives, the other big thing I would love to focus on in this episode is Keith because we get so much more Keith character development in this episode than we've had throughout the entire series. Just to name check a few things, we find out that he had a difficult relationship with his father, that his father had anger issues. We see him able to converse and talk freely with his cop partner about his relationship and the cop seems to be totally unfazed by it. So Keith does have a sort of an outlet that way, which is not something I would have guessed would be the case. Um, And then, of course, that partner says to Keith, you have to stop bottling things up inside 
it, it's going to cause damage. The cop suspects it's going to be cancer, but then moments later, obviously, Keith shoots and kills somebody. Mm-hmm. And then Keith basically mirrors the first episode when David comes to see him in his moment of distress where he's hurt and he's crying and he's had a terrible day and he comes to Keith, maybe it's the second episode. Uh um, And, and he's just been kind of cold to Keith prior to that. And he's called Keith his racquetball partner. Right. And he reaches for Keith and he kisses him and he wants him to just take him in his arms. And then in this episode, Keith comes to David Mm. and wants to just be able to express this terrible thing that's inside of him physically without even really talking about it. Mm. And David gives in. So he kind of does to David what David did to him. Yeah. So, and we also see Keith really vulnerable. Yeah. For the first time. Keith has been so strong. He's a rock for everybody. And in this one, he's he's just crushed that he has killed this person. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't so what, go to his boyfriend. He goes to David. I know. Right, right. But we see that moment where he, like, tries to talk to his current partner, Eddie, right? Mm -hmm. About how difficult it is to, you know, basically raise his niece. And Eddie is just like, cool, you have feelings. Do you want to make out right now? And he's like, no, I'm like not. You know, so we kind of know that Eddie is not going to be like the emotional source that we know that David could be. Yeah, Eddie, I believe in that moment, literally tries to change the channel. LOL. Like he grabs That's the amazing. remote and points it at the TV. That's amazing. <laughs> um, but also, I just going back to like that David Keith parallel of them like running to each other in a vulnerable moment. Like what's so different about this one is that like when David came to Keith, they were in a relationship, you know, like whether or not it was a fling, whether or not how serious it was, like they were definitely together. Whereas Keith is like breaking an even bigger having a bigger discretion, you know? And so it's just like, I don't know, they're both of their boundaries are a little, and then I'm so angry at Keith. He's always (laughs) my favorite. And he's just been really human in this one. But I think that's, what's so good about this episode is that like, I've so quickly glorified Keith. And in this one, he's like the most human out of all of us. Yeah. I mean, I, I really appreciated it because we have been, even on the last couple episodes of this show, talking about Keith in sort of superhero-y terms, you know, we're like, he's, he can do no wrong. He understands himself so deeply. You know, he he is he just has so much self-knowledge. He's so much more evolved than everybody else. And it it's a I think it's a credit to the show that they don't let any of the characters get away with yeah. a lack of complication. Do we want to talk about the shooting? I think it's worth at least acknowledging the dynamics of the shooting, although I feel a little weird that we're three white people talking about it. I know. But I did find it powerful to watch Keith wrestle with this, Mm -hmm. wrestle with this thing that I imagine is a moment that all police, not all police, have to contend with during their careers, but must ambiently wonder Mm -hmm. if it's ever going to happen. And it does happen. And the show, I think it's fair to say, takes a decidedly empathetic role, uh, point of view towards what this experience was like for Keith. Yeah. And I think it does so in a way, you know, it's obviously not a systemic critique of policing, but from a character standpoint, I think it's it, it's very fair to Keith. And it's hard to imagine in the current climate here, somebody, whether or not 
the scene was well rendered. It's hard to imagine somebody writing and then filming and and releasing a scene like that. There's just I just don't think that's that's the kind of thing that a lot of people here want to see right now. Yeah. Um but I do think that the way that it's written is very similar to a lot of the ways that like the stories that we hear as Americans is that like, oh, well, he was doing his job. The gun was turned on him and he was like, he was just doing his job. And it's just like, I don't know. I think that we know that Keith knows that he, he could have deescalated it differently. Right. And he's really upset at himself for that. And this is the first time we're like, yeah, we just see a very like the inner thoughts of Keith. Yeah. He definitely regretted it clearly, but yeah. Yeah. I would be curious to know if we have any listeners of color who are watching through the show again and had feelings come up when they watched that scene, given the, the dynamics of the moment, please let us know what it was like. Yeah. If, if you're comfortable doing so. Yeah. Please let us know what it was like. Uh, it would be good for us to to be educated about that. FFG at WALT.FM is the email address. So so we have so we have two goodbyes in this episode. David says goodbye to Keith. Keith says goodbye to David. And then Claire says goodbye to what's her face friend? Parker. Parker. And I'm, I was a little sad because I was like, I know that Parker's not a good friend, but she's kind of funny and she involves Claire. And I really appreciate that. But I just like, I feel like Claire's, um, her introvert is real, was really showing in this episode because I think when they were all talking about Emily, what's her face? She was like, you know, what's wrong? She was like, she just didn't want to be bothered by like how annoying humans can be or Claire said something along those lines. And I think... I can see, like, I feel like Ruth and Claire were really interesting parallels in this one because both of them could end up having the same fate as Emily at a certain point. And one of them is, like, it kind of sounds awesome. And the other one is, like, really fighting against it. I loved the moment when Claire said to Parker, Parker, you're such a parody of yourself. I know, I loved that. Because, you know, that's something that we have talked about on the show, the fact that Parker is... It's like a cartoon character, yeah. Basically, um, it, you know, like everything she does is just so she she's like performatively blasé about everything, yeah. And she's like, I just love having sex so much. It's all I think about. Like everything with her is so extreme, one dimensional. It's just very one dimensional. You know, I th- I guess I think it's somewhat interesting that Melissa. Brenda's new friend says to Brenda that what she appreciates about Brenda is that she doesn't have to, she can just be herself. She, she yeah. doesn't have to be this exaggerated stereotype version of what people imagine herself to imagine her to be. Mm-hmm. And I think on some level that is probably what Parker appreciates about Claire too, because in her way she's saying to Claire, I didn't have a choice. My mom had spent all this money and, you know, I have to do what my mom wants, which that's not Parker talking. That's the mom talking. Yeah. Or do at we... least Parker's experience of mm-hmm. what it's like to have a mom like that. I think this is a really interesting moment of like female friendship in all forms of like an inauthentic one, one that is actually pretty like candid and authentic. And then Ruth, who's like, I'm afraid I have no friends. I have no friends. You yeah. know, um, 
So this that's a really interesting like triad a little bit. That's true. I think Gary said something to Claire that really got Claire quite well. And she, uh, when he said she's afraid of people seeing the real her, and I think that really like yeah. struck a struck a note with her. I agree with you, Mike. Gary says to her, "It's really scary." I think he says, "I wrote this down too." He says, "Letting people see the real you is scary, and or can be scary, and and or being the real you is scary." And unfortunately for Claire, I think a lot of times in her life, the experience that she has had when she shows that real version of herself is that people recoil or they run away mm-hmm. uh, or she is disappointed by their reaction. That's That happened with Gabe. It happens in this moment with Gary where Gary says, it's so great that you're expressing yourself and I can tell that you want to have sex with me. And she's like, God damn it, Gary. Like, that's not what's happening. What was that? Um. But I think it's also interesting to tie back to Emily Previn because, I mean, I feel like I said it somewhat clumsily when we were at the start of the conversation, but I feel like what they're trying to say with Emily is that I think it's very easy to reach a point in life where it feels maybe not better, but easier easier. to not, to keep things inside and not share yourself with other people until one day it's too late. And just to call back, doesn't wasn't there one episode where Claire, I think back in season one, say something about how, like, silence and darkness are scary to her? She says that's the house that she grew up in. Silence and darkness and so, shadows, basically. But in this, this is interesting because it's like, she says that she doesn't like... She No, she says that she likes the darkness... She doesn't like the light because it's like porous and you can like see all of the scars and everything. Yes, that's right. She she says when she thinks about the test, she imagines a fluorescent yeah. light exposing all her flaws. So I feel like if anything, she's more comfortable in like masking herself and like sitting in that darkness because like unfortunately that's what most of her life has been. And you're making me realize, uh, remember rather, that in that scene, the... Claire's physical posture is very striking. She's yeah. kind of closed in on herself and her hair is literally hanging in front of her face. Like she is really just physically concealing angst. herself. Yeah. yeah. Mike, I'm curious to know what, what was on your bullet point list that you that you flagged? Right. Uh, well, seeing that we just talked about that thing that Gary said about, you know, what, let's talk about the sexual tension. I think one of the themes of the episode is, is seeing, see, seeing things that aren't there. So, like, this counselor sees this thing that isn't there, the sexual tension. Um, the healthy relationship between Brenda yeah. and Nate that isn't there. That's it. Um, fantasies like the rock stars. Also, uh, David's fantasy, Coop and Fish. I think another one of, like, seeing things that isn't there, I kind of think that Brenda's sex scene adds to that because she's watching and the guy turns over and he's like getting so off and she comes home and laughs. And I think that she interpreted that moment. He interpreted that moment of like, I'm so fucking cool and I've got all this power. And she's like, you're a sad man that pays for sex, you know, like, and this is what, and no judgment, but I think that that's how Brenda interpreted that. So that's just another addition to like seeing things that aren't there is she's like, I'm seeing this very differently than you are, dude. That's true. And, and to go even further with this, maybe Mike, than you intended Ruth's nightmare. (laughs) Ruth's nightmare nightmare. is that she looks around the house and Mm. sees that nothing is there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, 
let's talk about Ruth because Ruth clearly has some like she's working through something right now because I feel like this is the first time she's been like I am reconstructing my house and you know I'm putting in a new foundation and I feel like this is the first time where you know she literally opens the like under her sink and she realizes that like her pipes are a little dirty you know like they're still kind of rusted so I'm I, I feel like I know which rhymes a bit with the scene where the same thing happens with Billy and Brenda. Hmm? Billy is, they have a kind of a candid conversation where Brenda says, I need to know if I need to be worried about you. Mm-hmm. And that happens while Billy is looking under the sink trying to fix a pipe. Ooh. Just saying, pipe imagery. Pipe dreams. Pipe dreams. Mm, interesting. It's Ruth's biggest fear, isn't it, really? Just that lack of anyone around, you know. She had no purpose with no one around. That's Her purpose is to feel needed and necessary. And, you know, everyone else is so busy. David with his things, Nate with his things. And just Ruth's left, just abandoned. Could be left abandoned. That's how she feels, I think, in that moment. Do you think that, like, her life has just kind of been, oh, kind of tying back into what Claire said. When David was, like, Oh, she must have, he's talking about Emily. He's like, oh, she must have some high school friends. Everyone has high school friends. And Claire's like, no, she doesn't. Friends, sometimes they're just filler. They're just fluff. And I'm curious if Ruth in that moment kind of realized that like all of the distractions of the funeral home and her children and her husband, none of which have like real, she does not have, you know, real emotional intimacy with if that's all just been fluff, you know? And what do you do with fluff? You get rid of it. And then what do you see? You see an empty house. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> whoa. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also interesting, you know, for a while we were, we had a, we had a series of Ruth episodes where it seemed like she was developing some somewhat genuine bonds with people. She and Nikolai seemed to have this yeah. understanding about the dynamic of their relationship. What happened to Nikolai? Where has Nikolai been? Yeah. The last couple episodes. He stopped episodes. hanging out after he hit on me with my haircut. Oh, that's what happened. Yeah. Talk about expanding the Six Feet Under universe. Mm-hmm. It Coming jumped into, into the present day. But that is weird that Nikolai is, has not been present. Because I was like, are they, they're a thing. And like, they haven't really been a thing this whole time. Right. Nikolai has vanished. And also, um, uh, Robbie, who mm-hmm. she was ostensibly yeah, Robbie hasn't been here. going through this whole plan experience with um we have he has apparently not their relationship has not transcended the plan meetings in any way that we know about it just feels weird i feel like she's regressing a little bit for reasons that i think maybe emily was just really triggering to like what ruth doesn't want her life to be and she's like already in the process of rebuilding and she's realized that, like, oh, I still haven't put in, like, a proper foundation. Because um, she had all of that, like, I am speaking from the fiercest, my fiercest eye, you know? <laughs> and it's like, where did that confidence go? Like, she, it seems like she's kind of, like, lost that a little bit. So I don't think that, I think she's still putting in the foundation. What was Ruth's existence without her husband, you know? I feel like as soon as, like, Nathaniel Sr. is dead, Ruth is like, Oh, what what now? Like, what what was what yeah. what was my existence? You know, was, was I, she was kind of like just like a, a wife character. I think that's just such a typical experience for women, where it's like my whole world has just been defined by being a wife and a mother. 
And then when neither of those roles are no longer needed, like, what do I do? Like women of her generation, you know? Um, So I think it's really wonderful that Six Feet Under has like kind of taken that character challenge on of like, this is a woman who's like past her sexual prime. So it's like kind of at this point of society where it's like, you can't give birth and like, we don't want to watch you give a blowjob. So like, what is your purpose until you're like an old granny, you know? So I love that we're kind of like in this transition period with Ruth. I just want to say thank you, Six Feet Under, for that. Yeah. I mean, we're really seeing Ruth contend with all these these emotional storms because, in a very intense way. And I think actually that's pretty parallel to Brenda. I'm just making that connection now because both of them have used other people's emotions and priorities and schedules um, as like the main focus. So they never had to really look at themselves, you know, like yeah, yeah. what Brenda's mom had said in the past is in the past episode was something along the lines of like, you've never faced your de- demons and they are legion. And I think that Ruth is like, I don't think Ruth has demons, but I think she has a lot of ghosts, you know, like mm-hmm. I think she's a little mm-hmm. haunted by things that she never got to do. So I think it's interesting that both Brenda and Ruth are going through these moments in their lives where it's like, how can I not be defined it's also interesting. I mean, you're making me remember that in this episode, Gary basically says to Claire the same thing that Margaret said to Brenda in the last episode. Mm-hmm. Gary says to to Claire, you're doing that thing again where you focus on other people's drama to avoid dealing with your own feelings, which is essentially what Margaret was saying to Brenda. You You yeah. were so focused on being there for Billy that you've never dealt with your demons. Because Nate is actually like in her way at the beginning of the episode, Nate's in the way of the the drawer in the kitchen. And so he's definitely like something that's in the physically in the way of Brenda. Yeah. And, and also to your point earlier, Mike, about, about how they're both lying to themselves after Nate says, yeah, I love, I, I, I love you. Let's get married. The sound that we hear, you know, I was talking before about how there's voiceover for the first time in this one. There's kind of a sonic voiceover in that moment of Ruth's tea kettle going off almost as though like the tensions between them are about to boil over. Oh, (laughs) what? You know, I don't think it was a planned voiceover though. I think it was just edited that way. I think the scene was filmed and then they'll just use the voice in that Nate scene, but I I, I can't prove that. But, Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. I, yeah, that's, that's, I, I wonder actually, I genuinely wonder that. I mean, one of the things we would love to do, at some point on the show, if any of you are listening, is talk to folks who worked as writers on it because yeah. so much of Ugh. what we seem to fixate on is what, what were they intending to do with this? Why was yeah. this choice made? Um, and it would be so fascinating to know how much of that, as you say, Mike, was intentional and how much of it was uh, something that just came across as intentional and w- conveniently worked. How about this one then? Um so this like obviously David and Keith have split up. So like this is the post Keith part of David's life, yeah. But it it won't end because of death, because Keith kills a guy. This relationship won't end because of death. It's like so the, sh- the show is about death, right? So like I just thought it was interesting that like the show Death is all around us and like death has brought Keith back into David's life. Just like totally. And just a few scenes earlier, David is worried figuratively that death is going to keep Ben out of his life. Oh, yeah. He lies about being a funeral director because he is worried that if he's honest about it, it it will keep his true partner away. 
Wait, yeah, we need to talk about Ben. Ugh. <laughs> ah. Oh my god, I was so excited. And he was so anxious, wasn't he? He was more anxious than David, which is quite nice, quite surprised to see. Well, he took up like, beta blockers and stuff. So. I don't have like full faith that it's going to keep going. I think they're both a little they're a little too similar. And what I think works with I mean like obviously I'm just like I just want as much Keith in this as possible so I'm being really biased. Um what I think is so interesting is that David and Keith are such good foils for each other whereas the Ben character seems like just as uptight if not even more to the point where he has to like drug himself a little bit in order before he goes to court. Um so I, I feel like there's the same kind of like uptightness and I don't totally know if that's what David needs, but we also saw them on a first date, and we all know that first dates are weird and not a good example of what a real relationship with that person is. But I don't know. I do think it's good that David is, like, getting back out there. Does Keith offer, like, a different kind of support to Ben? I feel like Keith's got that kind of, like, macho boyfriend kind of vibe where you can cry on his shoulder. not sure Ben's going to be that kind of... I mean, it is interesting, I think, that, you know, Ben says that he takes beta blockers mm-hmm. and he is he's coming across in the scene is a sort of like stereotypical beta male which is kind of adam scott's specialty oh, that's right so funny that's yes the, that's, that's so good that's the characters he always plays Ugh. and so i think i think part of what what david does love about keith is keith does have there's a there's an alpha energy yeah. to Keith that isn't toxic or at least wasn't toxic until this episode. At least. Yeah. And, but it's also the first time that we see David like really fantasizing in the way of like, I think we've all done this where we think about like the wedding or sending out the invitations with both of your names on it, you know, like jumping a thousand paces before you've really gotten there. And we haven't seen that before. Like we haven't really seen an excited version of, David but then also the breakup with Keith and I think it's fair to say that it was like a real breakup like physically hurts him you know like he's in bed and he's like I have such this terrible I'm assuming that his headache was because of the Keith breakup Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so I don't feel I don't think that Ben would do this I don't think that I think that Keith has clearly affected David on a cellular level and but also when David and Keith first got together, like David was not nearly as evolved with his own acceptance of his sexuality. So I don't know. I'm curious if like if David had met Keith at a like more evolved moment in his coming out process that he would have done like that same fantasy, you know, I'm just not totally sure like what that what are they trying to I think they're still trying to learn from each other. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, that goes back to that scene towards the end where Keith comes to David and does this kind of mirror reenactment of the scene from earlier in the series where, you know, David, over the course of the series, has absorbed a lot of Keith's way in the world. He's grown more confident in his identity. He has become less shy and retiring about speaking his truth and and claiming his space in the world. So he's absorbed some of Keith. But in a way, Keith, it seems like in this episode, has absorbed 
some of David, like a realization that he needs somebody he can really talk to about what's going on for him. And also maybe to some extent he's absorbed a bit of David's bottling up his his anger and frustration about things Hmm. to the point where it becomes combustible. Mike, I have two kind of like ancillary questions for you. Um, how do you, which character you, do you identify with? Like, like Sam, it's, it's Nate. I don't want to say he's a role model because he's, he has such, uh, he's such a flawed character. So it's, it's good to learn from Nate in a way that you can kind of learn from those flaws and try to not go down the same path. But I feel like he's, he's such good natured and, you know, he, Actually, not in this episode. But usually, he thinks he thinks of uh, the the dead, the, the, the people that they look after uh, every episode. He, he usually he usually is quite thoughtful about them. A nice guy, but very very flawed. And then my second question for you, and like, feel free to answer this however you want. But do you believe in an afterlife, or what do you think happens after we die? I don't actually believe in afterlife anymore. I think the more I've grown up, the more I've kind of accepted science over faith. I feel like, um, you know, if 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 if, 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 if at the afterlife was on trial, it wouldn't win because there's no proof of evidence of it. So I mean, I'm not going to sit on the fence of that. And I just feel like it's a great. I, I I would love it to be real, but I'm not sure that it would be. I feel like it's to do with people's acceptance of death or not acceptance of death. So like. The afterlife has said, you got to, in death, it's fine. This is where you go. It's going to be, yeah, going to be happy. It's, there's more life. It doesn't end. Yeah. You know? So it's, it's to give that feel that I think it's been created to reassure people that there is, you know, existence beyond death, um, like heaven, unfortunately. I just yeah. don't think it's actually real. But, you know, um, heaven exists on earth, right? I guess, you know, just enjoy it while we're yeah. here because I don't feel like there's anything after. Well, this is becoming a, a trope on the show rapidly when Adrian asks this question. Um, but I have, I have a, a way, I, I have a response to what you said, Mike, that like it did last time comes from the Marilyn Robinson book, Gilead, but it's a different quote than I shared last time. Uh, and it's actually, it's Marilyn Robinson quoting John Donne. And the quote is, one short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. And I had to read that like seven times before it made sense to me, but I think the implication in the quote is it's actually death that dies because we awaken into something eternal. Ooh. So death is just this idea that we have come up with for our transition out of whatever this is. But our spirit could live through people that we left behind, right? So that's, that's like six feet under with Nathaniel Cena still talking to his family. I mean, his spirit is living on through through their memory and their thoughts of, yeah. of him. That's why telling stories is so important. Absolutely. And the last one, seeing things that aren't there, is the closed casket. Because Emily <gasps> Previn wanted an open casket. She wanted to be seen. At the end of the day, it's a closed casket and she's not going to be seen. Hey folks, just me here on the outro because Adrian and I accidentally forgot to record our outro during the recording session. So I will just very quickly say, as always, thank you so much for listening to Fisher Family Ghosts. We appreciate you very much. And if you would like to email us, you can do that at ffg at walt.fm. We appreciate your feedback and commentary on 
all matters discussed herein. Thank you so much to our guest, Mike. We will put links to his YouTube channel in the show notes if you're interested in checking it out. And we will be back next week with another all-new episode. As a reminder, this is not the only podcast adventure on which Adrian and I have embarked in our lives. You can find Adrian's show, Strangers Abroad, in whatever app you're listening to this in, and my show, Family Ghosts, in the same place. We love you, and we'll talk to you soon.